someone who likes to brag about how they um, fast or, or how they serve the Lord. And you can see it on their face. You may, you know, their, their hair may be deceitful. They, they may have kind of like, you know, uh, a haggard expression on their face. Oh, I've been fasting for this long. And they like to tell you about it. You know, they, they like to kind of, you know, it's a badge for their religiosity. And the understanding is this isn't just a New Testament thing where Jesus literally calls out the Pharisees for doing this. This is in the time of Isaiah. This is in the time 700 years before Jesus even walked this earth. And the understanding is that there is a purpose behind fasting. And the purpose is always, always, always to be meant between you and God alone. Not publicly for everyone to see. It's just like, you know, the, the understanding of spiritual gifts as well. What are we supposed to use our spiritual gifts for? Whether it's, you know, speaking in tongues or whether it's wisdom or whether it's those things that we use for service and help, helps and gifts and all the things that God has given to us. What are we supposed to do with those things? We're supposed to understand that those edify the church. But then there's the other person, right? What's the other person? On the opposite extreme of the spectrum, it's the person that doesn't fast, right? And that, too, also is an extreme as well. And unfortunately, you know, it just comes from complacency. It comes from lack of um, understanding. It comes from the attitude that, I'm already okay with God. God's already okay with me, so I don't have to do that, right? But there's always a balance in the scriptures, whether it's fasting, whether it's communion, or whether it's prayer or coming uh, to church, whatever it may be, these are very, very good verses for that. So in fact, you can put within those verses, whenever you see the word fast, Whenever you see that word fast within uh, these verses, you can put communion. You can put prayer. You can put all the religiosity things. Because do we like to brag? Oh, I went to church. In fact, I went to church this many times, right? It's like a contest even amongst Christians. We don't necessarily tell our friends at work, but we'll tell other Christians about it, right? And we like to brag about how religious we are. When God is calling us into an amazing relationship. Uh, by the way, these verses are describing, this chapter is describing a particular time in the Jewish calendar. It's called Yom Kippur. It's called the Day of Atonement. It was a day when the Jews would literally set aside and they would put away all the worldly comforts. I, I know a guy who actually celebrates Yom Kippur uh, today uh, in, our, in our time. Every year he always celebrates it. And so, you know, it just happens to fall on a certain time. Normally, it's in early September or, you know, late September, depending upon uh, the year. And so he doesn't run his air conditioner. That's a sacrifice, right? Especially in Bakersfield, right? Yeah, of course, you know, if you don't run your air conditioner. And, and he gives up food and he does these things and he, he, he describes it in a certain way where it's very, very religious. But you understand there was a reason for the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. It was a time when not only the people were supposed to renew their relationship with God, but to understand what atonement actually means. It's the understanding that God is going to come to this earth as the Messiah. And he's going to die for his people. Now, of course, the people in, of Israel, at this time, they would sacrifice a lamb. They, they would sacrifice some sort of a, you know, animal, a year-old lamb. And they would take that animal into their house, literally. And they would examine that animal. They would make sure that animal was, you know, kosher, didn't have a single uh, scratch on it or a single uh, blemish in any way. And the understanding was that that lamb was for their sins, their atonement. 
the covering of their sin. You understand that Jesus Christ also suffered and died for us. The atonement. And what do we do when we celebrate, you know, whether it's Easter, or whether it's Christmas or religious holidays, what do we turn those into, unfortunately? We turn them into um, literally pagan rituals where we worship things. Is Christmas canceled this year because there's not going to be enough trees or there's not going to be enough presents? Of course not. It's in the news all the time, though. All your presents are sitting out on the Long Beach Harbor right now. Did you know that? All the things that you want are out there. But what's the real meaning of Christmas? You know, it's to celebrate who God is sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And that's the same thing with Yom Kippur. It was meant for a day to be set aside. Unfortunately, the people of Israel took it to the ultimate extreme where they would literally beat themselves. They would publicly flail themselves on street corners to show their commitment to God. And it was a, a badge of honor to have these whips or these lashes or these bruises on their body. See how dedicated I am to God. And God is saying, I don't want that. I don't want your fastings if it's not really for me. But also what they would do is they themselves would uh, observe these religious ceremonies, but their servants, they would beat if they ever stopped working. They would beat anyone that was in their household that didn't continue serving them during this time. That their, their religion was only for themselves and anyone else in a servant role was not allowed to participate. In fact, this is what we see here in verse 5. Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Continuing on there in verse 6, it says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? What is the purpose of fasting? It's to change our hearts. It's to examine us. And see, is there anything wrong in my life that needs to be fixed? Is there any sin that I've hidden in the crevices of my heart that I need to confess? Is there something that I need to give up? Or, as it says in verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him. And not hide yourself from your own flesh. You see, the religious attitude of the day was, I'm being religious by, you know, afflicting my body, my soul, while everything around me is falling apart. Well, people are literally starving in the streets. By the way, does that still happen today? Oh, yeah, all around us. On our way to church. What do you see many times? Yeah. There's people that are in need. The call is to reach out to those. And then thank God we go to a church that uh, is on the forefront of that, that loves to do that. Verse 8, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Many times when people fast, it's to get something from God. It's to somehow get on God's good side. And you see it, whether it's on TV or maybe a, a show or something that you watched before, this guy will fast for a certain number of days because Daniel did it. And, and what's the reason why? It's to get something from God. It's to get, whether it's a blessing or some sort of inspiration or whatever it is, it's to get something from God. 
But do you understand the reason why? It's to change our hearts toward those that are in the lives of those that we know. It's to understand that God will come quickly when we are reaching out to those around us. When we are changing our hearts and lives to reach out to those that are needy. As it says here, and this is an amazing phrase, then your light will break forth like the morning, just like when the sun rises every single day. Verse 9, it says, Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets to dwell in. Does God reach out to those that are humble? And as we've been going through the book of Isaiah, we have seen this contrast going all the way back to when I, um, the devil himself, Satan himself, fell. And what was, why did he fall? What was the reason why he fell? Because of pride. And so the contrast now is between pride and humility. Over and over and over again, we see in the book of Isaiah, the holy, holy, holy God who comes to this earth. How does he come? Humbly. From a virgin born in a manger. Not in some castle, not in some nice place, but in a place of humble uh, means. And God is going to repair, God is going to restore the nation of Israel through the Messiah. Verse 13, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in the high hills of the earth, to feed on with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Why do you come to church? And it's the same question that we can ask with fasting or communion or, or other religious activities. But why do you go to church? Is it to make connections? Is it somehow because someone, you know, is going to be there? You know, whether you're, you're single and you're looking for someone, I'll go to this church because there's a bunch of pretty guys or pretty women there, or handsome guys there, you know, whatever it is. Or there's people that I know that I'm friends with. Or, or I won't go to that church because there's people that I know that I don't want to go to church with, right? And there's these ulterior motives when we go to church. But do you see the reason why God has us coming to his sanctuary? The, the church, the, the people that we collectively call the body of Christ. What does it say there? And I love this. You shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. And to feed with the heritage of Jacob, your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When I'm doing it for myself, guess what? You're going to get a nice, good feeling, and that's it. But if you're doing it for the Lord, there's a pleasure that goes beyond a temporary feeling. It's the satisfaction and peace that you can have with a relationship with God. In fact, in the book of Luke, Jesus says this exact same thing, starting in chapter 18, verse 9. It says, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they despised others. You've heard this parable before. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. By the way, he's saying this out loud, okay? He's purposely saying this out loud as he's praying, maybe with his hands up. What is the bragging that he is saying? Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One is proud, one is humble. Verse 14, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tie-in all the way back to 700 years before in Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 59, it continues on. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Just by reading those two verses, what separates you from God? Is it very clear why do your prayers bounce off? Why do my prayers bounce off the ceiling at times? Why? Because of our sins. Is God somehow running from us? No. What does it say here? It's our sins that separate us from God. In fact, in verse 3, it goes on to say, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue has mute, muttered perversity. All these things that we try to hide from other people, whether it's hate, whether it's prejudice, whether it's lying, or whether it's something that I say, whether it's backbiting or gossip or whatever it may be. What is it that separates us from God? It's our own sins. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They, they trust in empty words and they speak lies. They conceive evil and they bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper eggs and weave the spider's webs. He who eats of their eggs dies and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know uh, peace. Literally requoting the book of Proverbs. When our, when our children were young, we, we always had this phrase, you know, run to do good. You know, the, this idea that when, you know, whether it's Emily or myself, you know, said something, you know, that whether it's cleaning their room or picking up the toys or whatever it was, that they would do it immediately. Run to obey. But what are they doing? Which things are they running to? What are they running to? Are they running to good? No, they're running to evil. And they're dragging their feet toward good. In Romans chapter 3, verses 15 and 20, Paul says this about sin, and, and you've, you've heard these exact phrases. You probably just don't know where they come from. They come from this chapter, by the way. Romans, Paul is, is literally quoting these verses from Isaiah chapter 59 to describe humanity as a whole. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 15, their feet are swift 
to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the flaw, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. On Monday nights, we've been going through the book of Ezekiel, the men. And we've also been alternating with the way of the master, which is an evangelistic tool. And, and we've been learning this exact same concept. You have to take someone and show them that they are in need of a savior by, by showing that they are sinners. Every single one of us are. And we're all in need of a savior. The problem is when I think that I'm not a sinner. When, when I'm not in need, right? I got it all, you know, under control. I don't need uh, Jesus. I, I don't need a savior. But the purpose of the law is to show us that we are all in need of a sinner. All of us have lied or cheated or sinned in such a way that we hated another person or blasphemed God in some way. We are all in need of God's perfect sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 9, it says, Therefore justice is far from us, nor does justice overtake or righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. As for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, who makes you sin? According to these verses, who makes you sin? Is it someone else? No. Who is the one that chooses to sin? Me. You, exactly. The understanding is, and just like with the nation of Israel, we can say the same thing as Americans. We're automatically followers of God. We're all children of God. We're all Christians, right? Because we live in America. Israel thought exactly the same thing, except for they thought that they were children of God. Uh, you know, of course, they weren't Christians at that time, but they believed that they were automatically going to paradise just for being an Israelite, just for being born. And everyone else was fodder for the fires of hell, right? All the other nations were the Gentiles. They're just dogs. But the understanding is, as we see in these verses, who is actually the one that is transgressing, committing sin. It's us. Who is in need of a savior? Us. And thank God that he is reminding us of that. In fact, we may think that we are hiding our sins from God when in reality, our sins always testify against us. Aren't you glad God separates your sins as far as the east is from the west or he buries them into the deepest sea like what we learned about last week? Aren't you glad for that? Because if any of our sins were there to testify against us, it would be permanent separation from God forever and ever. And I know I could never pay for any of my sins. Never. None of us can. Not even one. Not even one. It only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, as it says in verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. 
So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it pleased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation to him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. None of us can do it on our own. Who is the one that offers, as we talked about last week, his arm to us? That saving arm that was pierced for our transgression. Who who is the one that sustains your righteousness? Who gave you righteousness? The Messiah coming to this earth, exchanging his righteousness For my sin. It is all 100% by God. It is God who gives us salvation. It is God, his own righteousness that sustains us. You see, Jesus' righteousness incarnate will provide intercession and a way of salvation for us. By the way, this is the, you know, not only the reason why Jesus came to this earth, but to show us what it means to be righteous, what it means to be humble, what it means to glorify uh, God and who he is. Verse 17, I love these verses. And by the way, these are a a precursor to the book of Ephesians, uh, chapters five and six, the the, um, uh, armor of God. In verse 17, it says, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will uh, repay. Uh, Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemies come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against them. Who will fight for the nation of Israel? Who will fight for his people? It's God. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. There's an amazing uh, picture in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Elisha. His house was surrounded by the Syrian army. They'd come to arrest him. They didn't like him. And, and he sends his, you know, uh, servant out to go and ask them why they're there. And they're about ready to take him away. And Elisha says this amazing prayer, open up my servant's eyes. And when his eyes were open, his spiritual eyes were open, what did he see? Surrounding the house, literally on the mountain surrounding Elisha's house. The hosts of the armies of God, not just one angel but an army of angels. It's absolutely amazing. Can you imagine that? That if God were to open up your eyes today, all the things that you've done, whether it's just coming here to church or or going to work or doing the things that you did, the amazing way that he already protected you today and you didn't even know it. Aren't you glad? That, That it's that amazing touch of God in your life. And by the way, have you ever thanked him for that? Have you ever thanked him? I mean, just literally seconds before you see that accident, you could have been in it. But the Lord protected you. Thank God for what he's done. He's our redeemer, by the way. Verse 21, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words, which I've put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants. Descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Will the word of the Lord ever go back in vain? Will the word of the Lord ever disappear? 
No, this is the privilege that we have. And thank God, I mean, we have it in so many different translations just in our, our language alone. But the privilege to have a, a, a Bible that we can actually read from, that we can actually uh, read in our own language. It's truly a privilege. For chapter 60, verse 1, it, it begins with this amazing... Um, uh, it's uh, almost like a, a chorus, and it's going to be repeated, this chorus, uh, but it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, the deep darkness, the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising, lift up your eyes all around and see. They will, they all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come. To you, the multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Epha, all those from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and incense, they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. You see, the privilege of the Israelite was that they weren't just to keep this good news to themselves. In fact, going all the way back to the time of Abraham. What were the descendants of Israel supposed to do? Be a blessing to the nations. To show the nations around them that they were different. That they worshiped God. And the same is true for us today, by the way. We call it the Great Commission. What are, what are we supposed to do as Christians? Are we supposed to keep uh, this, you know, privileged information to ourselves? This good news to ourselves? No, we're supposed to share it with those around us in our lives, in our spheres of influence. Verse 7, all the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Neboeth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with the acceptance of my altars, and I will glorify the house of my glory who are those who fly like a cloud and like doves to the roost? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified uh, you. And just by the way, a side note, you, you read a lot of these countries, these cities, these hard names to pronounce, you know, they, these, you know, these things that, you know, we probably have no clue where they're at, right? Unless you open up a, a map or something and look for them. And it, you know, the illustration is exactly the same, by the way. If someone were to come to Bakersfield and you'd say, I'm going to go to, you know, Arvin or to Atchafi or, or, you know, Taft or something like that. And they said, where is that? I have never even heard of those, you know, uncomprehensible places, right? it's exactly the same thing. You know, these people that have lived there, they, they know these places. They, they have been to these places. They've heard of these places. They, they know these places because they've lived there. And so an Israelite would, would know these uh, things just like a, a Bakersfieldian would know all about Kern County, right? It's the same thing, you know. It's just that we have to take a little bit of time and we have to actually look it up for ourselves to understand uh, these places. Verse 10, the son of foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. For in my uh, wrath, uh, excuse me, for in my wrath I struck you, and but in my favor I've had mercy on you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet 
glorious. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. By the way, you know, many people, and, and before COVID, it was a lot more, uh, of course, common. But I mean, literally people go to Jerusalem for one purpose and one purpose only. Why, why do people go to Jerusalem? Is it because it's clean? Or, or it somehow, you know, has, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, and, and unfortunately many people can think there's mysticism or something like that. No, why, why do people go there? Especially Christians. Why do we go there? There's history there of Jesus himself. Israel walking into this place. The very footsteps of Jesus Christ. The places literally that were there during the time of Jesus himself. The upper room. The Via Dolorosa. All those gates that are beautiful. And then the privilege of knowing that they were there. The understanding to know that the mighty one, the savior, actually walked these streets. And then just out the outside of the gates there, on Golgotha. Crucified publicly. And then buried, buried in that tomb, the garden tomb. And of course, people rush in to see, is he still there? Is he still there? Thank God he's not. To know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our Lord has risen. That history literally meets our eyes. We can see it for ourselves. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 17, it says, Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron, I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. By the way, this is repeated in Zechariah chapter 2 uh, verses 3 through 6. Uh, you'll see it up on the screen there. And there was an angel who or talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet me who said to me, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst, there will be so many people in the nation of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, that the walls will be meaningless. It will literally overflow. Verse 19, the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light and your God, your glory, your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Also, your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand and a small one, a, a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its uh, time. Isn't that absolutely amazing? And we call this the millennial kingdom, by the way. The privilege when Jesus Christ literally reigns here on earth. The privilege of knowing that this will come to pass. Chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, 
the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness. By the way, have you heard those verses before? You probably have. You just don't know where they're at. Guess what? They're right here. In fact, Jesus himself quotes these verses when John the Baptist asked that question, are you the Messiah? And Jesus goes back. This is prophetic words literally being fulfilled. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, So he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Isaiah chapter 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to sit at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And of course, he drops the mic, he sits down, he puts down that uh, tablet or that scroll and they look at him. Can this be the carpenter's son? This has been fulfilled in your presence. You see prophecy being fulfilled. Are we blind? By the way, prophecy is being fulfilled today too, by the way. Thank God. Is it getting closer and closer and closer? Isaiah 61, verse 4, And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities. The desolations of many generations, strangers shall stand and feed their, your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers, but you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of your God, our God, and they shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of your confusion, and they will rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. This is the second time we've seen this phrase. And we're going to be talking about that at the end there. Your, their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, and they are the posterity whom the Lord has uh, blessed. Why are we going to be taking communion tonight? What's the purpose? First Wednesday of the month, first Sunday of the month, we take communion. What's the reason why? It's to remember the covenant. It's to remember the covenant. Why do we have grape juice or, or the juice here? It's to remember in the new covenant in his blood. It should just blow us uh, away. Verse 10, we'll be ending it here. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me. With the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its buds, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. In the book of Revelation, there's this beautiful picture, an absolutely beautiful picture of the bride of Christ. You, the church, and the description there is of the wedding dress. You know what the wedding dress is made of? The works of the saints. That beautiful, every single one, whether it's, you know, and whether you made your own dress or not, or had someone make your own dress, you understand the, the intricacies that can get involved in a wedding dress and how exorbitant the price can be, right? 
Now, now I'm, hey, of course, yes, that was women laughing, you know, but because us guys, we have no clue. My, I'll, just a quick side note here. Okay, so we got married in the Philippines. My wife, you know, uh, you, thank you, God, that I have such an amazing wife. She put me in a Barnes and Nobles and said, stay here because if I go to the marketplace and try to buy a wedding dress, they'll raise the price on me because you're white, you know. So you understand. So, you know, just that understanding that, that the beauty of the dress is in, in the intricacies, the details, right? And it's the same thing of the church as well. In the book of Revelation, it describes this amazing dress that is on the bride, and it is made up of the works of the saints, the deeds that you do in the name of the Lord are on the beauty of the church, the beauty of the bride. And so tonight we get to remember that. And by the way, there's there's stations around. You can just get up and, and grab one of these things. We're going to be uh, taking this corporately together. And, and the privilege of understanding that, again, just like fasting, just like any other religious exercise, we can take this in vain. But I, I hope tonight, I hope tonight that you understand the meaning behind this, that this isn't just some religious exercise. That this just isn't another notch in your spiritual belt. That there's a, a purpose behind this. And it's to remember what Jesus Christ did for us. That we wouldn't take this flippantly tonight. That there would be a, a reverence behind this. In Matthew chapter 26. It says this, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my bread. So as you take it tonight, remember what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Do you understand what this means? That every single time we take that little wafer and you, you chew on it, maybe you're still even chewing on it. That, that texture, that, that flavor. And then as we, we drink this cup to remember that this is his shed blood for us, a new covenant in his blood. Because I broke the old one. You broke the old one. God makes a new covenant with us in his blood as we take this. Remember what Jesus Christ did for you. And then verse 29, and this is what we look forward to. This is the privilege that we get to look forward to. But I say to you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Are you looking forward to that day? Oh, yeah. It's not in some sterile cup. It's actually going to taste good. <laughs> Do you understand the privilege that we're going to have? And we get to sit at that amazing wedding feast and partake in the most joyous celebration ever. But as you know, and, and you know, it doesn't end there, you know, for those of you that, that come on, Wednesday nights or have heard me before. That's not how it ends. In verse 30, it continues on. When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount, to the Mount of Olives. As they're walking up that Mount of Olives, 
by the way, it's not an easy climb. It's a, it's a steep climb. They sing a song. And we get to sing a song tonight. Please stand with me. You may have heard this before. It's exactly taken from these chapters, by the way. The, the words are different in every single verse, but the tune is exactly the same. It goes like this. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrow cease. Tis music in the sinner's ear, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avail for me. To God all glory, praise, and love be now and ever give. By saints below and saints above the church in earth and heaven. And so, Father, tonight as we leave this building, help us not to leave the same way that we entered in, that our hearts would be changed, that these amazing chapters in this um, obscure section within the book of Isaiah would just really speak volumes to our heart this um, evening, this week, that we wouldn't leave here and forget what we have uh, learned, that we would actually meditate upon these things. And Lord, I ask that you would bless these that have come here tonight, those that have watched online. I ask that you would just refresh them immensely, that as they, they sleep tonight, that they would really be comforted by knowing you, that, that all the religious things that we can put on are just uh, dung, that, that they're just um, literally rubbish in your sight, that they're filthy rags without you. And so, Lord, when we do come to church, when we do fast, when we do pray, when we take communion, when we, when we come and serve before you, that, that we would do those things with the right attitude, not for the applause of man or the accolades of, of you know, a, a pastor or a person that we know, but that we would do them for you. That we would desire to do them for you. That we are pleasing the one who loves us. That we are pleasing the one who created us and saved us and gave us his righteousness. Lord, we thank you so much for that. We love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.